This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsight owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, first we'll talk a little bit about port infrastructure over in Europe. It looks like about $7.9 billion is the estimate of some upgrades that might be needed uh, just to handle some of the increased volume of you know shipping from offshore wind. We'll talk about spiral welded tower technology, which could be a major player as far as you know construction on site without having to ship these really long towers. We'll talk about the Motion Blue X Wave Energy prototype, which is now off the Orkney Islands in testing phase. And the U.S. is actually investing in that to see if we can get some of this wave power up and running on the West Coast. And lastly, we will talk about Australia uh, breaking an output record with 5,899 megawatts and some of the, well, the plans for this very big energy hub uh, in the southwest uh, side of Australia to potentially create green hydrogen uh, and other fuels for use in heavy industries, power stations, shipping, and more. So, Alan, let's start with infrastructure. Uh, obviously, this is this is was going to be a problem. We've talked about this, just the need for oh, yeah. bigger ships, for installation vehicles, for bigger ports. Um, as these things grow and there's more demand for it, like this is going to stress everything. So, um, I mean, I assume you you just see this as a natural progression for all these countries just to, to make this work, right? Oh, sure. Can can you well imagine that if you have a, an existing port that closed in the 60s or 70s, which is probably, at least in the United States, is what a lot of ports are going to be, all the infrastructure you have to put in to make them viable t- to handle offshore wind. It can be roads, right? Heavy duty roads to carry heavy things for trucking. Uh, all the power requirements because you're be putting factories near the ports. Uh, so all the all the power demand you're going to put there. Uh, all the uh, other bits and bobs of buildings. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just going to be massive amounts of infrastructure, sewer, water lines, the whole thing. I I always guess that when they come up with numbers for infrastructure projects, it's roughly 50% of what is actually needed to finish the job. So they probably need twice that amount to do it. It's always so intensive on labor and on materials. And with the with inflation right now, you wouldn't want to start it today, but you need to start it pretty soon because you know that this influx is coming. It's like building a small city right on the port and one of the most one of the more difficult places to build a city is on a port uh for a variety of reasons right i mean the land may not be suitable for heavy structures you you may have to build it up you've got to deal with trying to get roads in and out and you're 
there's a lot of cities near the near the seashore, so it, it's not easy to do that. And uh, the cost of infrastructure has just exploded in the last 10, 20 years. I <laughs> do you do you see this as being a massive problem that as a, if I if I'm GE or if I'm Siemens Gamesa. I don't want to pay for all that stuff. Like I don't want to put all the sewer lines in for the this whole up and down the the port community that needs to be built up. I don't want to pay for that. Uh, you want the community to do it. Well, and you already we we talked about how it seems like the margins might be relatively thin for some of the the manufacturers like GE and Siemens Gamesa, where sure they might not have all that extra cash. I, again, I don't know the the fin- the deep financials of it. I'm not sure anyone really does. Unless you work for those companies, but you know you talk about raw raw materials increasing in price right now, whether it's fiberglass or concrete or or especially steel, um, sure. and then you ask them to pay for it. And I don't, I'm not sure that's what what's being talked about here, but someone's got to pay for it, obviously. Right. Um, and you wonder if it is the OEMs, the manufacturers. So well, it's like a sports team in the United States. The sports teams don't want to buy the stadium in which they're going to produce all the revenue from. It's this is not much different. But it's on a much larger scale. And as you know, in Washington, D.C., all the development that happened around the, the Nationals baseball park, there's a lot of cash put in in that, I don't know, square mile. Uh, it's going to be larger than a square mile in all these ports if they're getting going to get serious about offshore wind. So it's just it's a massive amount of money. And how many times are you going to replicate that along the eastern seaboard of the United States? Same thing's going to happen in Europe. How many times are you going to replicate this thing to make it close to where the actual wind turbine site is? Because you don't want to haul anything if you can avoid it. So that's why I think they're off by a factor of two. Uh, we'll see as it, as it goes. But I, I don't see GE pouring a lot of money on infrastructure, and I don't see Siemens Gamesa doing it, or Vesta. So I don't see any of them do it. I see either the communities are going to do it, or the national governments are going to do it if they really want wind to develop in their particular area. Scotland's already doing some of those things. Um, in the states, it could be New Jersey, it could be Massachusetts, that have enough tax rolls to to force that, and maybe they get more jobs, and it'll pay itself off over time, or maybe it won't. But don't you see that as just being this? In the United States, that would be a massive, massive uh, amount of infrastructure to be built. Something we haven't probably done since probably World War II. It's going to be that big of an event. If we're talking about the numbers we're talking about, it's going to be big. Well, and if we want to prevent uh, hurricanes, we're going to need 100,000 turbines <laughs> in the Gulf of Mexico, remember? So a lot we'll of suck all the energy out, that yeah. if we want to yeah, suck all the energy out of uh, hurricanes like those yeah. researchers were talking about. But mm. I digress. Um, so Keystone Tower Systems is back sort of in the news cycle talking about spiral welded towers. And, uh, you know, interesting to, to think of that technology as, you know, being able to essentially maybe transport a roll of of steel and then have some sort of device that rolls it out and robotically welds it on site alan it's it's not clear how this is done but uh it's a it's a pretty interesting concept and i'm not sure if this is how you know how prevalent these are or if this is gain traction or or where keystone is as far as uh, these spiral towers well, it looks like they're putting a demonstrator together down in Texas, because I think the company's based in Denver, Colorado. And the thought process is, is you can take a, basically a massive roll of steel or a, a, some form of steel and, like Dan was saying, just spirally weld it to, and weld it. So you create the spiral tower 
that tapers, but at the same time, you're welding it continuously all the way up so that you bring in raw steel and you pump out a tower out the back into your factory. That eliminates all the transportation of tower segments and then stacking those tower segments out on the ocean or or putting together and then dumping them into the ocean, so to speak. Uh, so the, it's a, sort of an, an, getting rid of all the, the, the transportation and all the infrastructure that's needed to, to move this tower. It can be done on site. And I think the number they tossed out was if you're making 15 turbines, putting a facility in would pay for itself. So it's some sort of like put it in, make all the turbines, take it down, go to the next spot sort of event. But most of the sites in the United States are talking about way more than 15 turbines. So then then the economics play, right? And, you know, if you're making 50 or 100, like they will in the United States, then this spiral welded tower thing could be an interesting development. And, and don't you see, like, and this is about the time where uh, investment groups will start to to pick up on the the amount of money that's going to be invested on the northeast of the United States in particular and start putting venture capital into uh, unique, probably very profitable uh, technologies that will going to just be implemented up and down the coastline. So say they built 50 of these different little, not won't be little, but different spiral welding tower factories up and down the coastline. That could be a great business. And I think if we watch to see who invests and how much they're investing in these technologies, is it going to determine winners or losers before uh, we get to this, the time of building off the offshore wind turbines? But um, we're going to see a lot more of this. This is cool. I, I can't even, can you imagine, Dan? I mean, you know how massive these towers are. Can you imagine bending steel like that and welding at the same time? It seems like monumental <laughs> kind of massive structures to be playing with. Yeah, when it says they they secured their first commercial order in 2019 from a major uh, turbine OEM, and that in here in 2021, this is where that uh, full scale plan is going to start to come to fruition, and right. they're hoping to do uh, on stu- on site um, in collaboration with the Department of Energy in the U.S. in 2023. Um, right. So it looks like yeah, they're going in the right direction, and that I mean. It is a really interesting concept, and they also talk about on their website that um, it, in an ideal world, the towers would be wider at the base, and this allows them to be to wa- be wider at the base than they already are. Oh, sure. And that's sure. another interesting, you know, just like, you know, with Cobot, they talk about how they can make a tower taller because right. they can make the base out of concrete and make it wider. Right. So that base right. width problem is actively trying to be solved by Cobot with their 3D concrete printing and actively trying to be solved here by um, Keystone Tower Systems. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it seems like everyone's figured this out. That let's, like you said, if it just only takes fifteen towers to pay for itself and make it economically viable to put that on-site manufacturing plants, then fifteen towers is is nothing. That's There's a nothing. third, if if that, of a, a typical right. U.S. wind site now. Maybe less right. so than Europe, where you know in Europe they'll put a more a single tower here in this town or a couple here in this town. But in the U.S., it seems to be pretty big, big projects, you know, closer to 100 than mm-hmm. than 15. So, yeah, so that's interesting. Um, definitely makes sense and definitely fits that whole that whole model that everyone's going to just do it all on site and eliminate the transportation problems just just in that. 
And then next up, and this is not wind, but this is uh, just part of this whole renewable energy picture is, so the motion blue, so this is M-O-C-E-A-N, like M ocean, motion blue X wave energy prototype. Uh, the U.S. is um, funding some projects with this on when we have energy tech. They want to put um, these out in the West Coast to just start to to go it, um, to get things rolling. Um, the Pack Wave South facility, which is off the coast of Oregon, um, and the DOE is just trying to figure out how they can advance wave energy technology and eventually get to you know where they're proven and, and viable commercially. Um, so they put the U.S. Uh, DOE has put 27 million of funding into research and development for wave energy, and of course, um, this company Motion uh, is part of that. So their Blue Wave X demonstrator is out there, or Blue X Wave demonstrators out there in the Orkney Islands now. And Alan, based on the photos we've seen of this, we haven't seen a good video where they explain like how it works, how it actually produces power, but. It's going to have a, a subsurface energy storage, it looks like. Obviously, all the cabling and stuff like that. Um, sure. Well, how does this thing produce power? Well, it's got a central pivot and, like, two wings. So it's like a bird, so to speak. And if you if you can picture this in your mind. So it's got this sort of massive piece in the middle and these two arms that float up and down as the waves come through. So one's up, one's down. And it these arms move relative to the center pivot point the the way that it seems to work it's sort of like a little bit of a ratchet uh flywheel event where it just kind of nudges some um spinning mass uh which is then connected to a turbine a generator to generate electricity so as the waves go up and down uh, against these two arms and I, there must be something about the distance in which the arms are set at and the little uh, look like scoops on either end to maximize the amount of displacement that they get so it's like pumping out you know like those uh, little hand truck uh, things you saw in silent movies where they're going down the, the train tracks and there's one guy on, the other, on each side and they're pumping up and down to make this little cart move it's sort of like that that's <laughs> what it looks like it's a similar technology or similar mechanical approach to it so it's generally it, there there's interesting things happening in in waves the question is you know how much energy can you generate versus the cost right and is it going to be efficient i think that's why um, the u.s is going to be involved in it to try to try to figure those things out and and on off the coast of california particularly up in oregon and washington where the continental shelf drops off and you have to talk about floating devices maybe wave technology is one of those things you could easily tap into because there's plenty <laughs> plenty of waves uh off the pacific ocean and it's always co pretty constant so in a, in theory you can then generate power day and night mostly uh you know how it handles rough seas and the whole thing is yet to be determined but do you see how this how this could be sort of advantageous and in, in, the, in the sense that waves are always kind of going and, and even if they produce a relatively low amount of energy at least it's some uh, added to the grand total of wind and solar and whatever else we're going to come up with maybe it's another piece yeah, and that's what is interesting is, you know, we've talked about tidal power in a previous episode. There's obviously wind. There's obviously solar. Uh, now there's some wave energy. And there's no details about how much this outputs. So I don't know if it's a megawatt, a kilowatt, uh, you know, who knows? There, there's no no reporting on, on how much it produces. But 
that's obviously why the Department of Energy is funding research and development, just to see yeah. what we can pump out, I guess, and what it's eventually capable of. But, but yeah, it feels like this is going to be this interesting, like we've got these huge mechanical creatures in the ocean, like all over <laughs> on the shore, like just everywhere. Yeah. There's, are we going to have pond, pond power soon? Like, you know, there's just something in just a little floaty, like a little boat just cruising around somehow harvesting something like, i don't know yeah mm-hmm. i don't know you know i the stream that, power well this unit this this wave unit is so massive that they can actually fit inside of it right so you can work inside of it uh that's interesting because airbnb inside, yeah uh, so if you're sitting inside the central piece and it's bobbing up and down and left and right and you're in this enclosed space that's like your maximum seasickness kind of event <laughs> they got to get hazardous duty to be working inside of this unit if it's deployed that's it's interesting I, you know i you always hate to poo-poo a, a new piece of technology uh, in the sense that you're not really sure what like you were saying how much energy it can produce hopefully somebody has done that uh, because you know because we're talking about like 15 megawatt and 20 megawatt eventually types of wind turbines you can generate a lot of power off a wind turbine how much can you possibly generate off of waves that's yet to be determined i know paul guype had mentioned something that to us about wave power has been around for a while and it hasn't really come to anything massive yet but there's different approaches to it, and and maybe this is one that will be beneficial in some parts of the world where there's just constant waves. Alaska, maybe one where except there's ice up there. You know, what do you do with the ice? So you maybe you are talking about Washington State and down the coastline as uh, as uh, your your places where this could be developed. But eventually, it comes down to levelized cost of energy. What is it? And we haven't seen numbers yet, so we'll just have to keep our eye on it. Well, moving on, um, Australia is having a go at the moment. <laughs> They're uh, excited to report that uh, 5,899 megawatts was churned out on Tuesday of what day was this? I guess uh, t- Tuesday of this week. So that would have been uh, July 19th as a high output for the for the country. Um, now that South Australia has a number of extra wind farms online, um, and constraints that were previously capped have been relieved. Uh, things are just sort of kicking and output's quite high there. So I you know, expect this is just going to be a trend of every country that each day is almost like a new record, right? Yeah, it will be. And especially as we add more and more wind turbines, these numbers are going to get dwarfed. In 10 years, you're going to look back and say, that's nothing. <laughs> that's, that's a drop in the bucket. Uh, don't you think that... If Australia goes after wind like they probably should, that these numbers are going to be tiny and we're not even going to think of them as being all that difficult to achieve. (laughs) So this is interesting, though. I mean, they did make a big uh, press release about it. I saw it in a couple different sources. I saw it on LinkedIn. I think I saw it on Twitter. Uh, That's good. People are paying attention. That's good. If, if anything comes out of this right now, is people are paying attention to how much energy wind is creating. I don't think anybody has a sense of what it means yet, but they will. And this is part of the general population switching to electric power over time, like was going to happen in many parts of the world. And it's just going to be a different way of, of generating power. And and we ought to celebrate those successes. And this is something to celebrate. So this is good. This is really good. 
Well, and with more news from Australia, that there's a consortium of con- of uh, companies that want to create the what would be the world's biggest renewable energy hub in Australia's southwest to convert wind and solar power into green fuels like hydrogen. It's reporting from theguardian.com. Um, and so this energy comp- these energy companies want a 15,000 square kilometer area, 50 gigawatt capacity, cost $100 billion. Um, and they want to, like I said, green hydrogen. And essentially, this is going to be very comparable to the current capacity they have for coal, gas, and other renewable uh, plants currently in their energy market. So um, my question to you, Alan, is why green hydrogen? And ammonia, like, what are those fuels important for? Well, the ammonia is for fertilizer, at least it is in the United States, and that's uh, a big industry in the states and the farming areas. And then the hydrogen, I think the thought is that they're going to take uh, large trucks and industrial equipment and convert them from diesel to hydrogen. That's a big transition to make that's not particularly easy to do. But there, there was at least... When I recollect the last time I dealt with Australia a lot was when we were developing a solar car back in college, and the solar car race across Australia was a big deal. So you you see all these, I think there are three trailers long trucks that ramble across Australia. There must be a lot of trucking because a lot of the the bigger cities obviously are on the coastline, and it's that's a huge country. So getting from one side to the other is is a big deal, and it must take a lot of energy to do that. doing it with a cleaner energy would make a lot of sense. And I, I know Tesla, as we all know, uh, Tesla's trying to develop a battery-powered truck, shipping trucks, uh, to to help reduce emissions and the whole thing. Uh, I'm not sure hydrogen's the way to go, though. That's, that's it. It, it. The green hydrogen thing is still a mystery to me in terms of how real is it versus the cost to generate it. And Rosemary Barnes did a really good job about this in one of her YouTube videos talking about it takes a lot of energy. It's only like 30% of the energy uh, used out of it. So you put 100% of energy to make it and you get 30% back out of it. That's not a great return on investment. And so is the battery power a better solution? And um, I don't know if you watched one of her recent videos, and I think this is part of sort of the electrification and new energy solutions in Australia. But Rosemary was talking about using electric vehicles to then sort of provide stability to the grid because everybody's a significant portion of society in Australia will at some point have an electric vehicle or electric truck or electric tractor trailer. If it's plugged into the grid on times where the grid can't feed all the energy from wind and solar, say at nighttime, maybe there's some feedback from the cars and the trucks back into the grid to stabilize the grid. So it's kind of this little bit of an eco-structure that will develop. And Australia, I think, is in a really interesting place where it can do that now. I know there's a lot of infrastructure already built, but it's not so much like the United States where the infrastructure is aging and really hard to because we've sort of developed along the East Coast so much. Uh, there's a lot of Australia that's still open and for development, so to speak. So this is going to be interesting to watch. And uh, the hope is that uh, the United Kingdom, uh, European Union, uh, different parts of the world, Australia, are going to try different different types of energy production and to support their electricity and energy needs. And let's see who the winner is. Don't you see that's being a better solution than everybody 
doing the same thing. The, the variability helps here. Yeah, I would agree. And of course, this is, you know, like we know Boeing and Airbus have some, I think they're pretty much backburnered at the moment, but they've been tinkering with hydrogen planes, right? And they're trying yes. to develop out that te- technology and see what that looks like because, you know, right. some of these countries want that to happen to, to eliminate the jet fuel emissions from the atmosphere. Um, right. But they're a good, what, 20 years away, 30 years away from that, making that happen? Pretty, pretty I, I long think way away, if not. Yeah. If, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so, so maybe if you get started now, there could be enough cheap enough hydrogen fuel or that's getting going. Whereas I know we've had to play catch yeah. up with wind in a lot of places where, hey, if we had done, we've, if we'd invested in this five, 10 years ago, maybe we'd be closer. We wouldn't have some of these problems. You know, it's always um, looking back at what we could have done. But this seems like pretty sure. forward thinking potentially where there might not be as strong of a of a demand for these fuels now. But maybe in just a couple of years, maybe there really would be. Very likely. Very, very likely. Well, and, and the consortium said that they expect the market for green hydrogen globally to be $50 trillion by 2050. Dollars? <laughs> yeah. $50 trillion U.S. <laughs> really? Now, that's a really round number. Anytime you see really round numbers, like maybe it was like $48 million, but they're like, yeah, let's what? just call it 50 But uh, it's a very round number. So I'm, I'm skeptical of it. Highly skeptical. But, you know, you make these predictions. Well, yeah. What's the combined economy uh, GDP of Europe and the United States together? It's not doesn't approach that, I don't think. <laughs> that's a big number. That's, that's a, a lot, really big it's number. It's a lot of trillions. It's a lot of trillions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of zeros there. Huh. Hmm. And Maybe. That's 29 years. <laughs> 29 years in the future. So we might be conquered by apes by then. Like, we don't know. Like, you know, dinosaurs I just, I might just, be back. I just think of all the small business pitches uh, that go, the market's $50 trillion, and if I get 1% of that, that would be $500 billion, and we will be rich, right? <laughs> and like, yeah. Uh, no, that isn't how it works. But, <laughs> you know, once that number gets out there, you're gonna, there's going to be some conference room where someone's giving a pitch that's going to go exactly like that. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh. But but good good things happening in Australia for sure. Really making <laughs> yeah. making some moves and seeing their uh, their output of renewable energy, you know, continue to continue to rise. So that's it for today's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show and check out the show notes or description. Uh, if you're here on YouTube for Uptime Tech News, where you can sign up for our new newsletter just to get a notification of the new podcast, other uh, wind tech articles from around the web, videos, whatever we find that we want to share that we feel like will keep you up to date with what's happening in the industry. So thanks again for watching and for listening, and we will see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.